Hi, I'm Agrita Dandrell, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of self and community in order to outgrow new individualistic cultures, which work to disempower communities so that we can collectively re envision a safer, healthier, and equitable world. Today, we're joined by David Lewis Pat. Yes, I think so many of us are afraid of conflict, but I also think conflict is and has been commodified in such a particular kind of way. Conflict sells. Any economist will even tell you, you know, what's the most profitable time? War. (laughs) And and that exists on that larger scale, but it also exists in a way on the individual level too. When I'm in rage and in conflict, there's a marshalling of resources around that rage, that conflict, that are diverted away from other aspects of my life that would otherwise utilize that that energy and that resource. And so sometimes I think conflict can be a good way to distract from the other things in our lives that aren't getting the attention that they deserved. David is a Toronto-based writer, speaker, corporate trainer and consultant, previously having worked in and around equity and inclusion for more than a decade. David has previously been a member of faculty in both child and youth care and social service work programs in Toronto, Brampton and Oakville, and is a founding lead on a number of community service and art-based initiatives supporting Black, LGBT and other groups, such as the Spiritual Arts Community Sunset Service Toronto Fellowship. He has also regularly contributed to national publications such as the Canadian Broadcast Company and Huffington Post Canada engaging as a thought leader on issues of race, identity, restorative practice, and working across difference. Thank you so much, David, for joining today amidst everything that's going on right now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we begin, I'm sure you're aware, before any episode begins, we do five deep breaths together as a sort of grounding practice to slow down. We all need that right now, (laughs) I'm sure. Is that okay with me? That's more than welcome, yeah. If you're able to gently close your eyes. Take this moment to Notice, notice the tensions in your body that have built up in the past week or perhaps have been lingering within for some time now. And notice how in this moment those tensions are slowly starting to transform into energies that you can hold and understand. Whether that's tension in your jaw and how this moment is allowing you to relax your jaw. Or if you feel tension in your shoulders, notice how this moment is allowing you to relax your shoulders, feel how they're dropping down 
And most importantly, notice how your mind is slowly coming to rest after racing around in so many different areas of your life and in this world. Feel the ground beneath you or the seat beneath you and how it's helping you to be in this moment, be grounded, be at the body level. And we're going to take five deep breaths together. You can do this in your own time or follow along with me. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and deep breath out. So final one, deep breath. In and a deep breath out. Now in your own time, when you're ready, gently open your eyes. I hope that brought a bit more calm in your life, at least in this moment. It was good. It was good. My dog was uh, was ready to be over it, but it was a necessary one for me. Thank you. No worries. So, David, to start the conversation off, I'd love to begin just by asking you, what was your calling for entering this space of restorative community work and facilitating the sort of discourse around it? Yeah, so I, for the last almost two decades, have been doing facilitation work, Mm. um, consulting work. And over the last number of years, one of the things that I was seeing more and more of was people really going through it, really having a very difficult time um, both individually at the communal level within organizations and a lot of the invitations that I was getting into spaces were becoming more and more about help we need repair you know I was I was getting less calls for you know DEI work or these other kinds of things that people historically had called me into spaces for and more of them were like we're at odds with each other and it's 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 difficult or we're at an impasse and communication has stalled and then I was also finding this in my in my friends groups and in you know uh, among my peers. Like the last number of years, I would say at least five to seven have been really difficult for a lot of people. It's come to a lot of things have come to a head for people, 
And I wasn't seeing as many people in the helping space devoting their time and attention to the work needed around repair. And so, yeah, really organically, I began to to move towards doing that work. And sometimes without a lot of the theoretical understandings of what I was delving into, in another life, I did work in quote-unquote spiritual community. And so there was a lot of aspects of that work that was restorative and was repair-focused. I uh, co-created and led a a small community here in, in Toronto, Canada, for seven years, we had been doing work with, um, you know, quote unquote, marginalized groups and people, um, many of whom would experienced exclusion from their faith communities of origin around, um, around healthy spiritual community <laughs> for those who had previously uh, been hurt by or had been excluded from uh, spiritual and faith communities. But uh, when I began to sort of delve more into real repair work and restorative work, I realized I had to go back to school and get some understanding of what, you know, what it took to do that work. And and I, I did some post, postgraduate training in mediation and alternative dispute resolution. Um, for a time, I had worked in the UK, uh, in the North, um, doing what's called family group conferencing, which is a, a form of restorative practice work, um, working particularly with families who've been in contact with child protection. And so uh, many of the learning that I got there was also included in in what I, I do now or, or more of now. But uh, beyond just like the professional and the academic, it was it was also just my own stuff, right? Like I came from a home that had experienced a lot of fragmentation and difficulty. I also was a, a, a child in the care system for many years. And, you know, if you know anything about the research on uh, children with adverse experiences, we have a whole host of really crappy outcomes. You know, if you've been uh, an experience of difficulty or childhood adversity, we're more likely to, mm-hmm. you know, substance abuse, more likely to be engaged in the criminal justice system, more likely to uh, be impacted by mental health systems, more likely to be unhoused, more likely to be underemployed you know, um, earlier, you know, risk of death and exposure to violence or uh, perpetrators of violence. And one of the things I was finding in my own life was that I I often was experiencing and had experienced conflict that despite my, my sort of professional life and work, I really struggled sometimes around being in right relationship with the people that I was close to or that I cared about or that I loved. And so, you know, this idea of sort of grounding your work where you are, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what do I need? <laughs> I need help uh, having better conversations. I need help repairing fractures. I need help uh, around accountability and responsibility and doing better in my relationships with the people that matter to me. And so if it's true for me, then it must be true for somebody else too. And so a lot of my work has been led by that idea, you know, if this is true for me, then there's there must be other people who uh, could benefit from this as well. And so making my own wound a window into what's possible for other people and, and my work. So, yeah. Yeah. And you say that you 
work with marginalized communities but is there any sort of specific community that you primarily work with yeah i've I've worked all across the gamut of of communities and again i i quote marginalized communities i I think that that can sometimes be an overused word but essentially groups that are in need of additional resource or who've been historically not thought of off the bat in program or service or community responses. And yeah, I've, I've worked uh, in communities of color. I've worked amongst 2SLGBTQ communities with the poor and the unhoused, those who were living with addiction, those who were living uh, with HIV AIDS, children and youth with mental health issues, and, uh, and those in the child welfare space. And so it's been all over the board, really. But those have been some of the groups that I've had the opportunity to work in. And many of the times there were also communities that I was a part of or am a part of. So uh, my work has never really been separate from myself in any real way. Yeah, that makes sense. This is quite context specific, of course. But could you describe to us some of the tensions that you have um, seen or worked around either within communities or between community groups? that perhaps have been pitted against each other for a long time by systems? Yeah. So I think more recently, I think a lot of the spaces that I've been invited into have have been dealing with the sort of racial reckoning that I think has been happening across the, the West between communities of color, Black and Indigenous and, and other groups, in particular European-descended groups, uh, those that we would racialize and label as white. And so sometimes, yeah, the, the tensions that I, that I would see would be in the work around justice. And again, maybe I'll quote that, quote unquote, justice, and what that looks like in our relationships between the seemingly oppressed and the seeming oppressors, or however some folks like to characterize it. And uh, and I was finding, and I continue to find that people were really struggling around what that looked like in its practice, right? Like there's a lot of conversations being had about about race and racial justice and and sometimes how that shows up in the everyday lives of of, of David and Agrita as just an example is very difficult for people. People can understand these these larger concepts that are very academic and activist uh, and they exist in those echo chambers and spheres in a particular kind of way that sometimes don't always uh, hit the ground in any kind of ways that can be practical or that can be always helpful. <laughs> like sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. things that exist as an idea or as a concept struggle in its implementation. And um, I was hearing from people and, and to continue to hear from people, I want to be in better relationship with fill in the blank community, racialized community or sexual minority community. And yet I'm finding a struggle because fill in blank. And one of the things that I was hearing more and more from, from people and I was experiencing in my own life and relationships was the absence of room for the missteps and the mistakes and the questions and the working out our little T-truths as we aspire to the big T-truths. And, uh, and I was like, wow, I want to lean more into to that. And so a lot of my recent efforts have been more around how do we lean into the difficult, what some might call courageous spaces, brave spaces, less safety, less focus on safety, which is, is sort of illusory. This idea of safety, you know, I can't ensure agree to safety in this conversation. You know, I've been talking for the last five minutes. I might have already said or done something that has 
landed in a way for you that mm-hmm. doesn't feel good. Yep. I can't ensure that you will be absent of impact or harm in all things. And that's unfair. That's an unfair expectation to put on on me, but also an unfair expectation for you to hold about your interaction with me. And so having people revisit these ideas and go, well, what does it take to be in right relationship with each other? And sometimes the path to right relationship means us having to contend with the difficult and the challenging and sometimes the all-out painful. Like sometimes, you know, it's not a walk through the park to be in right relationship. It takes difficulty. Absolutely. And so working with groups and working with individuals and working with myself on how do I stand in that gray space, you know, which all of us exist in, that is not as black and white as some of you know, our activists or academic faves might uh, purport it to be, you know. Yeah. And do you think that perhaps what I call mainstream activism or this sort of surface level, superficial sort of activism, even the term activism itself, I feel like is very problematic in its own way. Do you think that has kind of furthered community divides and how we are actually bridging the gap? what sort of gaps we're bridging in, in that sense? Absolutely. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So I I assume, and I know, because I, I know a lot of people engaged in that work to this day who are well-intended and who mm-hmm. are wanting things to be better for for a lot of different communities and folks at, at, the, at the margins. And yet, in our aspirations not always having done the self-reflection, community-level reflection, perhaps, you know, maybe I'm wrong, work that would be required to make sure that what we've set out to do isn't destroyed by the ways in which we set out to do it. You know, uh, the means and the ends. I think all things matter. I know right now what's quite popular is this idea of um, impact over intent. And uh, I know that that sort of gets touted out a lot by by folks many of whom are well-meaning. But, you know, I grew up in a home where it was made clear to me often, intention matters, you know. Um, impact, of course, matters, but intention matters too. It's, it's mm. Intention isn't, for, you know, isn't just some fanciful concept. It's, you know, my mother used to give an example of um, the difference in getting, receiving a gift from somebody who means you well and getting a gift from someone who, who doesn't. And how the seemingly sweet thing can be soured by ill intent. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, and I grew up in a very religious, spiritual home. And, and so there was a focus on, you know, checking your motives and thoughts, checking your intentions. Because, you know, in our tradition, God knows your heart. And so uh, a soured heart or a bitter heart can change even the best intent, the best actions or the seeming best actions. And I think sometimes, especially for, for groups that have experienced long histories of, of being hurt, it's important to do, as one of my professors, uh, Jane Middleton-Moss, talks about cleaning up your basement, making sure that your foundation level is as tidy as possible so that you can start from a, a good foundation. You can, you can start in a good way, you know? And I think because a lot of activism oftentimes is in reaction to things. There isn't the space given to do the necessary reflection work that healthy response requires, 
reaction doesn't require very much. Reaction is knee jerk. You know, reaction is immediate. Um, and, and sometimes reaction is needed, right? Sometimes we don't have the space to do any kind of deep dive analysis into ourselves or into situations. But given what we see happening on the global stage, there's enough actors reacting. <laughs> we need more folks involved in work to change things who are interested in responding. And responding requires pause. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of what I'm inviting into myself and hopefully inviting in through my work is creating space for, for pause. And so for the last uh, number of years, I've been utilizing a framework that I had uh, worked on when I was doing some of my um, equity work. And that's this idea of the grace principle. And, you know, in some, the grace principle is this concept that for many people probably lands as quite sort of religious and spiritual. When they hear the word grace, people think of it in that way. I prefer to sort of invite in this definition of grace that, that sees it as actually quite human. That grace is a very human thing. I can't speak to the divine part of it, but I can speak to the human piece of it. And, and to me, grace is the space that we give ourselves and by extension, each other to be human in all of what that means, the, the messy, the missteps, the mistakes, and the misspeaks, and allowing the space for and the trust to begin again. So that principle guides a lot of the work that I do. And mm -hmm. you know, when I'm teaching or if I'm facilitating or if I'm uh, invited into groups, I, I try to begin with the, the grace principle. And I, I've broken that down into these five mini principles, G-R-A-C-E, Good faith, good intent, responsibility, acceptance, commitment to curiosity, and endurance. And, uh, and those five mini principles help to make more tangible this larger concept of, of grace. And so the beginning part of it is this idea of good faith, that um, you can't start any engagement, whether you're doing it at the individual level or the communal level, without on some level showing up to the party with good intent in your heart, <laughs> like, right? Like, yeah. you know, I almost think about it. If I came on this call and my only interest is not necessarily to be in relationship with, with you, Agrita, but rather to get one up on you or to get a, a hot take or something, you know, that I can, can grab a good clip for some viral moment yeah. that I've actually not shown up in good faith because I'm not showing up to see the fullness of you. I, I've shown up with my preconceived ideas of who you are and how you are. And, uh, and I'm actually here to destroy. I'm not here to be in relationship with you. And so the first thing needed in, the, in this principle is to show up in good faith. Like, I don't, I don't know you. We, we've met once before, but I, I'm trusting that you're a decent person. Unless proven otherwise, you know, don't be, don't be, <laughs> yeah. I don't ask anyone to be naive, but at least you got to show up to the party with some level of, of good faith. Um, and good intent and holding the other person or the other group in, in good intention and believing like like you, they're human beings trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, of course, a, a very small, small, small minority of people who by way of, you know, neurological deficiencies or whatever might be absent of empathy and, you know, what characterize as evil. But on the grand scale of this planet, that represents less than 5% of, of people on the planet who are, you know, genetically predisposed to being a little uh, lacking in, in the human uh, aspect. But mm -hmm. most of us are humans just trying to figure it out. And so I've shown up here on this call with you in my best self, a little frazzled, but at least, you know, trying. <laughs> and I'm believing, unless otherwise proven, that you're a decent person trying to do your best. So good faith, 
Next is responsibility. Responsibility is uh, similar in some ways to accountability, but I feel like accountability has been sort of this overused term. Accountability now has become about this sort of finger pointing outward, right? It's the things other people need to do and other people need to mm-hmm. do better. Yeah. Whereas responsibility is the thumb pointing inwards, the, the things that I need to do. Responsibility is at its base, the ability one has to respond. What is under my care? What is under my control? And that is ultimately me. And so I'm in charge of my thoughts, my feelings, my actions, and my responses. It doesn't mean that I'm not impacted by what Agrita does or doesn't do, but to make that about her and what you need to do for me is um, a misuse of my mental and emotional energy. Instead, what do I need to do to take care of myself? What do I need to do to be my best self in this moment? And how can I show up in each and every situation to get the kinds of outcomes that I, I require? And so the next is, is, is responsibility. Then there's acceptance. And acceptance is this, you know, it's really easy, I think, on some intuitive level for us to understand that there are now 8 billion bodies on the planet. Of those 8 billion bodies, uh, they're not going to all be Agritas. They're not going to all be Davids. They're going to show up differently, think differently, have different cultural contexts, religious uh, traditions, particular kinds of you know politics or persuasions or whatever. And that they're not all going to be mini-me's. And we know this when it's the large scale. But then when it comes to our intimate relationships, one-on-one or in groups, we seem to forget that, right? Mm-hmm. Why isn't Agrita being like me? And because she's not showing up like me, thinking like me, acting like me, believing like me, then she's a problem. And instead, what, what acceptance invites in is, yeah, Agrita's different than you. She sees things differently than you. She shows up differently than you. She might have different beliefs and traditions and practices and and takes than you do. And that doesn't mean that she is trash because she doesn't see the world in in the way that you do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that she must then conform to your understanding of or be the way that you are. It means that you have to be in relationship with that. You have to accept the fact that there are differences. And that's not only in the interpersonal, but that's also in the individual. That acceptance is also an invitation into you accepting the multiplicities of of yourself, right? Like within me alone, I have multiple takes. (laughs) I have multiple positions. I I, I hold Mm -hmm. multiple truths at one time. And so it's not only about accepting these difficult other people or this difficult other group or this difficult other person. It's also accepting that even within you, there is uh, contradictions and conflicts and and a multiplicity of, of ways of seeing a thing. Yeah. Essentially, us being multidimensional beings, right? Made up. Well, I see it as different worlds and each world right. you're able to hold a certain part of you. And so every other person will have that multidimensional part of themselves so yeah of course and if i struggle you know and this is sort of basic psychology if i struggle with that in myself and many of us do we struggle with the fact that we are not uh at all times in accord and in integrity and because it's sort of difficult for many of us to to hold that in ourselves it's no wonder then that we struggle with it in other people and with other people and, you know, at base, projection is 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 uh, when we take the parts of ourselves that are difficult to hold and manage, and we see that on the other. And, and we, we can't see what we, are, we aren't ourselves. And so if I'm in conflict with the way that Agrita shows up in the world, there's something about what I'm observing that is present in me that needs my attention. 
And it doesn't mean that, again, we're all going to come by our, right? Acceptance doesn't mean that it's always going to feel good. It just means that as it is, is as it is. And you can't, you can't ever shift anything that you don't allow, right? Like what you resist persists, but what you accept can transform. So we've talked about acceptance and the next part of the principle. If we could go about that. The next part is uh, C, or the commitment to curiosity. And so maybe it's good that you start off by asking me what the next one was about, because that showed your curiosity. <laughs> and so, you know, this, this particular mini principle is what I'd also call the sort of anti-offense principle. And, you know, offense essentially is the, the feeling of hurt or disrespect that we um, get in our relationship with other people when we have perceived the actions or inactions or um, the words of another person to be, quote unquote, harmful. A lot of times the things that we get offended by are caused by our sort of interpretation of the thing. So it's not always the thing itself, but it's the way that we see the thing. And so the idea of being committed to curiosity is about adopting a posture of humility, you know, of this um, idea of not always knowing and assuming that you don't know. You know, in some spiritual texts, they they talk about, you know, this idea of, of being like a child. Mm-hmm. And so um, commitment to curiosity is this, this personal commitment that one makes to always be in that posture, in that humble posture of not knowing, assuming that you don't know. And it makes it very difficult to be in offense when you are constantly in question of what you see. And it's not, you know, necessarily gaslighting yourself or anything like that, but it's always just sort of think about as an example, when you're asked a question by someone that you know, you know, maybe let's use an example of, you know, Grisa, where'd you get that dress? And you happen to like me as a person and and so what you hear is, oh, you know, well, I bought it at, you know, this really great store and, oh my, you know, but if you've assumed that, and back to this idea of, of good faith and good intent, if you've assumed that I'm not in your favor, that very same sentence, right? Where do you get that dress? Well, what do you mean? You don't like my dress? You never, you never like anything I wear, no, right? Whatever. And sometimes we don't even run through that externally. We run through it in our in our heads. Mm-hmm. And so what commitment to curiosity invites is you to ask questions. Yeah. And back to the R and responsibility. You know, if the thumb is pointing back at you, the first questions that you ask are not of the other person or persons. The questions you ask are of yourself. So so David's asked me about my dress. Why do I feel so bothered by that, right? And so maybe some of the answers are, I didn't like his tone. But some might be, I was in a rush to get on this call, and I pulled this out of the back of my closet, and I already am not a fan of this dress. And so I don't feel great in it, and I'm assuming that maybe he doesn't think I look great in it, and therefore he's trying to sort of slyly come at me or whatever. And you go, oh, so then it's not even about David. It's about the story in my own head about this dress, or about me in this dress, or about me, maybe, or maybe about my body, whatever. Now, that is one level. The the next level is, okay, so maybe you've done that external or that rather internal work. But then you go, no, I, it was something about David and what David said or how David said it. Well, then because you've begun with this idea, right, back to these many principles, good faith, 
You started off with the idea that I'm going to assume, unless otherwise proven, assume good intention that if I've experienced this as ill-intended, because I've already decided that that's not going to be the case, right? That I'm assuming a Grisa is shown up here like me in good faith. So I'm also going to assume that that question comes at me in good faith. And even if I experience this in me as a bit of a... Ugh, that that maybe I might not have it correct. Mm -hmm. And so an example of that might be, well, David, you know, I'm curious about that question. When you ask me, I'll be honest, something about the way that I received your tone made me feel a particular kind of way. But also I pulled this out of the back of my, my closet on, on the rush to get on this call. And I don't even really love it myself. So maybe there's that. But I wonder, what was your reason for asking that question? You know, and, you know, maybe the response that you get from me is, I love the color and the way that it sits on you. It reminds me of something that I think my, my younger sister would love. And I'm, I'm curious about if they have it here in Canada too, or if it's just in the UK, you could have gotten off this call going, David is such a dick. I'm on the call with him and he's trying to slyly insult me about my dress. But the reality was, is that he loved the dress and he really just wanted to get a gift for his sister. You wouldn't have known that had you not, leaned into curiosity. Yeah. And right now I think we're in a culture that has incentivized upset, incentivized bad takes. We operate from a place of bad faith, right? We we don't assume good intention from the other. Yeah. And we're always waiting to uh, not only be hurt, harmed or offended, but to react in kind to that. And instead, this is an invitation back to this idea of pause. That in order to get curious, you have to pause long enough. Like I have to give enough space between my feeling of a thing and the thing itself. And sometimes when we're consumed by a feeling, maybe that's shame, maybe that's blame, maybe that's rage, maybe that's contempt. There's not enough space in <laughs> a room that is filled with contempt or filled with shame to be curious because there's already somebody occupying that, that space and time. And so it requires a pause long enough to say, I might be wrong mm -hmm. or I might not see this the way that it is, you know, and that's hard, especially when whole algorithms are working against that, that reflex. Yeah. I think it links back to what you were talking about, this, this whole idea of reactive sort of activism, right? Where we are not giving ourselves that time to reflect. And so if you think about that, at the individual level, um, not even just thinking about the systems, a lot of the time we, and I think it is a systemic thing, just this culture of fear has kind of been internalized within us where we are scared of causing conflict. And so a lot of the time we just rely on assumptions, right? On what we perceive to be right within that situation. When in fact, all we need to do is just question like you said, be curious enough and be courageous enough to ask the other person what exactly they're feeling. And that way, any doubts and concerns will literally be eliminated. Right. The, see, there's the thing, right? Like, I think we're both afraid of conflict, but we're also primed for conflict. And, and by that, I mean, yes, I think so many of us are afraid of conflict, but I also think conflict is and has been commodified in such a particular kind of way, mm. right? Conflict sells. Any economist will even tell you, you know, 
what's the most profitable time? War. <laughs> and, and that exists on that larger scale, but it also exists in a way on the individual level too. You know, when I'm in rage and in conflict, there's a marshalling of resources around that rage, that conflict that are diverted away from other aspects of my life that would otherwise utilize that, that energy and that resource. And so sometimes I think conflict can be a good way to distract from the other things in our lives that aren't getting the attention that they deserved. You know, anger in another part of my life, I, I'm, I'm studying therapy to be a, a social worker and a, a therapist. And, you know, rage and, and sorry, anger rather is often a, a cover emotion for other things because anger feels less vulnerable making. It requires less exposure. It's a protective thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Underneath a lot of our anger, sadness, fear, shame, guilt, emotions that sometimes we have uh, developed the skills to be able to sit with. But but rage and anger, I can work with that. I, I stand taller when I'm angry. I, I feel you know that rush of, of uh, hormones throughout my body, adrenaline. I feel empowered in a kind of way. And sometimes, and again, back to you talk about systems, but you can talk simply about corporations. Many of us live our lives online right now. The world has, has in a lot of ways, because there's a secondary world that's been created over the last 15 years. Yeah. And, and the online worlds that we exist in, the, the ways that these corporations have bet on us staying tuned in and plugged in is by keeping us in upset. News outlets, mainstream news outlets. If you were listening to any of the mainstream news outlets across the world, you'd think that the world was at its absolute worst. And in some ways it is, right? There are aspects of where the world is at today where things are, you know, a lot more difficult. But on average, life for everybody, not just for those of us in the West, has improved over the last 50 years. That, that there is actually, uh, on average, less conflict, less war less poverty, less, 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 less. But you wouldn't know it if you were to listen to your, your favorite news anchors or if you were to read the mainstream uh, newspapers or, or blogs. The world is at its end. The other side is to blame whoever that other side is. And that is a tactic. <laughs> it's, a, it's an actual tactic. How do we sell? How do we sell papers? How do we keep people logged in? How do we keep people stuck in our loops? Anger keeps people stuck in our loops. And so you'll notice even over the last de decade, where social media has really taken its prominence, every, on average, three to six months, there is a new global outrage. Every three to six months, there is a new thing that we should all be giving our attention to, mm -hmm. a new thing that we should all be concerned about. Um, everybody is hashtagging on a particular thing every three to six months. And enraged. You know, I had a friend who um, I remember was sharing with me how he had walked by a Chick-fil-A. Uh, Chick-fil-A is a, this American chain um, of fast food restaurants yeah. that has, has become quite popular. And that's CEO is a, a Christian uh, and um, has at times, I guess, it had come to light that had funded some groups that weren't necessarily supportive in all aspects of 2SLGBTQ communities. And so there was a, a period where people were calling for these boycotts of this chicken fast food brand. And a friend of mine, you know, was walking by one day in downtown Toronto and uh, the store 
had a lineup that was stretching down the street. And this particular friend of mine was absolutely incensed. And, you know, he uh, saw me and he was like, you know, I can't believe I saw this huge lineup outside of Chick-fil-A. What's wrong with these people, these horrible people? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, uh, that CEO is calling for the death of gay people. And and all of those people are putting their dollars towards our death. (laughs) And I was like, are are you sure? So, yes, it must be because this, you know, it's clear as day that this this company funds anti-LGBT groups and, and that is a pipeline to the extermination of gay people. And so, therefore, every chicken sandwich they're buying is, is you know, coming for our heads. And I said, I wonder if that's true. And he goes, you know, what do you mean? I said, I wonder if that's true or if they have a really good chicken sandwich, you know, <laughs> and he's like, well, but you know, they should know better. You know, it's, it's been all over. They've been talking about, you know, what this company has done and where they've, their money has gone and they should know. I said, should they, should everybody? Well, yes. I said, do you? And, he, and he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, do you always think about how every seemingly small action might contribute to some larger uh, problem? Well, I try. Yeah, I do. I, you know, and I happened to mention to him because I happen to know he loves his his chocolate, and he's got usually his his, his kitchen is stocked with some of the fanciest chocolates. I said, have you bought uh, chocolate this week? He said, yeah. D- did you eat some chocolate this week? He says, yeah. Did you enjoy the chocolate you ate this week? Yeah. When you're eating that chocolate, do you give thought to the fact that there might be some young child in some third world country who's been paid a quarter of a cent on a dollar? so that you can enjoy that very price reasonable chocolate bar? Uh, well, no. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, uh, are you a bad person? Are you evil? Do you wish death upon little brown and black boys in the Congo or whatever? You know? He's like, no. I said, then why? It's because I just, I can't hold everything in my head all at one time. Okay. So. If that is true for you, right? Grace is a space that we give ourselves and by extension, each other to be fully human. First, you give yourself the space and then you've got to give it to other people. But some of us struggle to give ourselves the space too. So, or sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes we're all too good giving ourselves grace and are quite stingy with the uh, giving of grace to other people, right? And so I said, if that's then true for you, then I would assume that, that somewhere that must be true for some of those people stood up in that line. It doesn't mean that you don't have to care about the, the little kids in third world countries who are um, helping to, to, to gather the cacao beans to, that go towards your, your chocolate bar. But it means that you can, rather than be reactive, you can be responsive. What, what's a way to respond to that? So maybe you, you decide to buy more you know, uh, ethically uh, selected food items. Perhaps, or maybe some of the money that would have otherwise gone to your 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 chocolate fix can go towards groups that are trying to make action on the ground. Maybe, or maybe it just means that you're more mindful than the next time that you buy that chocolate bar. Maybe it means that you pause and give thought before you buy it to the the people that are being impacted. You might still eat that chocolate bar, but you at least give an attention to as I eat this, I acknowledge, I acknowledge, right? And and on some on some levels. When in more religious context, why things like 
um, saying grace before eating your food is important because it's a mindful moment where you recognize the hands that have gone into the preparation of that food, the the lives, the very lives that were given up so that you could your chicken sandwich means that you revere it. And a lot of first people's first communities uh, all over the globe, you know, not, not all of those people were vegan. Most of them weren't. <laughs> Just an example. And I, I'm not asking for any vegans to come after me. I used to be one for a time. But it, it means that I respect the lives that I've taken in order to feed me and my family. That I don't take this for granted. Mm-hmm. That I, I only take enough to, to keep me alive and to keep my family well. And that I and that I revere the life that that's been lost here, and that I revere the hands that have gone towards making it. That I that I honor that everything that I do is because somebody else has done something before me that I've not seen. So commitment to curiosity. <laughs> I was like, where are we again? C. Last one. Last one is the E, and that's to endure. That none of those other mini principles can be. Uh, brought about without some commitment to an understanding of the need to endure, to stick around long enough to see the other things put into practice bear fruit, right? And so that's a hard word for people to hear. Endurance sounds heavy. And so another word I heard, uh, for is, is engagement, you know, or uh, the stick with ability principle, you know, sticking around long enough using the example of the the dress, you could leave this call and be completely offended about the way that I asked you about your dress. And maybe you go off and do another podcast about how horrible David is for, you know, his commentary on your dress. Or you can stick around. And maybe at the end of the podcast, as we turn off the recording, you go, David, I question. There was something about the way that you said that thing about my dress that sat stuck around long enough. And so back to this idea of grace, grace is a space that we give ourselves and by extension each other to be fully human in all of what that means, the messy, the missteps, the mistakes and the misspeaks and trust in that space that we can start again. Mm-hmm. And so there's space that you've given me, you've stuck around long enough to to see it turn around, you know? Yeah, that was so much to take in, but that was also really, really helpful because the next question would have been about what the grace principle means to you and how you've conceptualized that in community work. But I just love how you went from the individual body level to people around you and hopefully at community level and then within other communities as well. I think that's that's a very powerful concept. So what do you then envision as a restorative circle and community? What sort of principles or values does a circle or community need to have for it to be restorative, inclusive, and open to discussions like this? Yeah, I think all of the things that I've listed, right? GRAC. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have friends who are involved in sort of accountability work. I've, I've found that that's become, over the last decade, that's become quite popular, especially in social justice communities. This idea of accountability mm-hmm. circles, especially when there's been harm, whether that's been emotional harm or physical harm or whatever. Anecdotally and otherwise, what I hear is oftentimes those things, those seeming accountability circles don't work. <laughs> They're actually quite harmful to uh, all kinds of people, including uh, those who've been accused or those who've done the accusing. And there was a, a situation that, and I'm sure there's many others that have, have occurred where these accountability spaces, these restorative spaces have been honestly spaces where 
there's been a weaponizing of emotion that uh, people have really used it as a as an opportunity to not hold space for grace, <laughs> not hold space uh, for curiosity, not hold space for the opportunity to come back again. And instead, it's really just been uh, a space to uh, to work out people's traumas <laughs> yeah. in a mob, in a group. And so what I would offer is that individually and at a group level, we have to go back to a belief that repair is possible. Repair is necessarily always that we're going to clearly say instance of 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 say violence and I, I mean real violence I don't even the word violence gets lost we, you know, we use the word violence now to explain yeah. kind of myriad of of experience but let's stick to this idea of actual physical and harm real harms not not hurt or offense but but harms mm-hmm. that repair doesn't mean that you and the person who has abused you or who has Cause serious probation if um, are going to be best friends. Sometimes repair means doing work that we can move on. Sometimes repair is not so that we can be in relationship, but maybe the repair is about being in relationship within ourselves about this irreparably harmful experience. Right? It's an opportunity to because a lot of a lot of what we're dealing with is not only repairs in communities and amongst individuals, but the fractures that happen in ourselves when there has been conflict. Conflict doesn't only create harm in the outside world or, or um, fractures in, in the in the scene world. It's it's the fractures that it creates in ourselves. I remember doing work in uh, a community that had been impacted by violence. I remember having a conversation with a mother who had lost a son to gun violence and how she talked about how walking through the city, the same city that she had raised her son in, now became like walking through a battlefield. This place that had once felt like home now was unsafe. And so you know, the repair might not be about her her son's perpetrator, you know, and, and, and definitely can't be about bringing back her son. But there can be repair work that allows yeah. mm-hmm. this mother who's lost so much to be able to pull together what's left of herself and be in right relationship with her world again, as best as one can, given such a significant loss. And sometimes in community, we haven't always known how to do that. Sometimes we we center the wrong things and we can re-traumatize individuals who've already experienced significant trauma. Mm. I mean, the main reason, or one of the main reasons why I even created this space is because I soon realized that a lot of um, the pain we are seeing in the world currently and we have seen in the past is because of this projection of traumas and projection of our wounds out into the world. Those same wounds have been inflicted by these systems that are causing so much oppression and are violent in their own ways. So it's both ways and it's difficult to be addressing both of those, I would say, ends of the issue. But I think like you said, with the grace principle, just beginning with yourself and the relationships around you and working through that, I think is the best sort of change we're looking towards. Sometimes we talk yeah. about systems and I'll, I'll come to close here, but sometimes we talk about systems, like the way many religious communities talk about Satan, right? <laughs> As a sort of elusive, like, you know, figures separate and apart from ourselves systems 
are the structures that humans have made Absolutely. to make sense of the world. Yeah. And so whenever we talk about railing against systems, I'm always like, what are you talking about? It's like about railing against the government. Governments are made up of people. Exactly. Are, are, are structured by people. And so I think it's, it's a lot more empowering to begin to say that the way that I shift systems, whatever that means, actually starts with the little things. That me fixing things with my partner, my wife, my husband, yeah. my kids, uh, the, the people at work, me getting into right relationship with those that have done me harm, real harm, those that I have done harm to, that those small steps all work towards the bigger thing. The, the, the struggle that I think is in social justice, quote unquote, communities and activist communities and academic circles where people get paid a lot of money to write a lot of fancy books about theories and concepts is that we make those things separate and apart from ourselves and we don't action them in our lives. We have a lot of us doing these big actions to shift systems. And then in our relationships, can we accord with those who are closest to us? I don't give a crap about what system you think you're overturning. How to treat your mom. I don't give a crap about about patriarchy or about whatever system that you think is lesser. How are you in relationship with those who work under you? Mm -hmm. How do you do the cleanup work when you have misstepped or misspoken? How do you hold space for those who are difficult to hold? What your thoughts are about these big concepts? Because most of the people that I know who, who tackle these big concepts struggle in their everyday. Now, there's nothing wrong with that incongruence. Sometimes the reality is, you know, people love to trot out Audre Lorde. And, and, and Audre Lorde is this great thinker and writer. And she was this creative, powerful thinker who in her interpersonal life was very difficult and all out abusive. And yet, this statement with all her complexity, her intelligence, her thoughtfulness, was also someone for, for whom those in concentration experienced her as a very difficult and at times abusive person. Now, does that mean that that's okay, that she was all those things? No, but it also reminds us that, that all people are complicated. All people are complicated. Does it does it negate her work, her aspirational work? No. Actually, I think it better informs her work Absolutely. because we can say that her work was driven not by some grandiose ideas that she developed on the mountaintop, but from being in the ground, being on the ground rather, right? That like back to your question about what, why, why does restorative work matter to me? Because I have lived a life full of conflict. I came up in homes full of conflict. I still struggle with conflict. And because it's my struggle, it's also the place that I need to do the work. Yeah. It also just builds on how we conceptualize systems, right? Because we also have the human body as a system. We also have communities as a system. And then it's the wider overarching systemic issues like patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy, etc. So it's all about seeing what system you want to start with, which should always <laughs> be yourself, and then your community and Within that, I think we will be able to see the changes that we are striving for. So the acceptance bit, right? And the fact that the acceptance yeah. was right in the middle, right, of all those many principles, acceptance was in the middle, because it's not only about accepting the multiplicity and the diversity and the contradictions and whatever in the world, it's also about accepting it in yourself. And doesn't mean accepting it to be complacent, but you can't transform or transmute what you don't acknowledge. And you have to acknowledge it first in yourself. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, David, for this conversation. I really, really needed it. <laughs> I really needed it. And thank you. Yeah, I just feel like the audience is just going to connect to everything you say so much. I feel like if we just don't focus so much on reacting and rather reflecting and following this concept, this grace principle will just be so helpful for us in our own lives and hopefully as we work through community. So thank you so much for coming on this space and for sharing your wisdom and your time. It's really, really great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for being patient with me as I've been running about with a chicken, like a chicken with my head cut off with work and other things. <laughs> you've, been, you've held space so well and I appreciate you for it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. If you felt that this episode and previous episodes resonate with you, please subscribe to and rate the podcast on any podcast platform. And to support the show further, donate at buymeacoffee forward slash mindful agreed To find out more about David's amazing work and to access all other episode resources, visit mindfuloveverything.com.